0: Good morning, Hope Church. Today we're reading from 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth to Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do it for you. "'David said to Jonathan, "'Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, "'and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, "'but let me go that I may hide myself in the field "'till the third day at evening. "'If your father misses me at all, "'then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me "'to run to Bethlehem his city, "'for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. "'If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. "'But if he is angry,' Then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field, and Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm? The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside a stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away." And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him he is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on that second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul to his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone... David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city."
1: If you thought that Katie was making stuff up from what you had in your notes, it's because the passage is so long. We didn't include all of it in your, in your bulletin, only some sections that I was going to highlight. But, but part of that is significant to think of it this way. God spends more time in this chapter talking about friendship than he spends in Genesis 1 talking about the creation of the entire universe. And this is the second chapter in the last few that God spends talking about the loving, deep, intimate, brotherly relationship between Jonathan and David. Now to be fair, it's not just a theme in 1 Samuel, and it's not just something God talks about because of the unique and deep friendship between these two men. It is something that the entire Bible is wanting to depict as a healthy relationship especially among God's people, the church, to love one another and to love your neighbor as yourself, to be brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I can only imagine that this is a serious concern of God. Again, more time talking about this. 42 verses in this chapter, 31 in Genesis 1. More time talking about this than the grace of the universe. At least we can say that God thinks this is really important that deep relationships are necessary to our humanity and to our life together. We were designed to be in family-like relationships. We need that to be siblings in the Lord. But maybe now more than ever, at least for those of us in this generation, with the division caused by COVID, the political splintering faced in our communities, that goes right through our churches and our families, let alone things like technology, which for all its strengths isolates us, individualizes us, or the fact that we are in one of the most individualistic cultures in human history. All of that magnifies the reality of our own loneliness. Or how about this, the fact that we all probably atrophied a bit, in regard to our social and relational capabilities. Like, like if you've ever had a cast on and you've taken it off and you've seen the thinness of your arm and the loss of muscle mass after six weeks or however many weeks and you have to build that back up, or your leg atrophies because it hasn't been used for a certain amount of time, you have to work it back up. Now think of that same kind of atrophy with human relationships and engagement. So this text is important beyond that. It's it's a a significant part of this ongoing biblical story about the role of King David and what he's going to do, and I'll talk about that. But I also want to look deeply how this passage depicts the unique relationship between Jonathan and David, and in many ways is exhorting us to emulate that in our relationships with one another. So before we look at the text together, let's, let's pray and ask God to minister to us through his word. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things of your law. Help it to form us and shape us and mold us. At times, rebuke and correct, but encourage and exhort in ways that in collaboration with your Spirit feeds us and directs us, gives us light into how we should live today and this week and in the months and years to come. So we ask for not just knowledge, but wisdom. The fruit of your glorious and gracious word to minister to each of us both as individuals but also as a collective corporate body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me start with the big picture and where 1 Samuel 20 fits in to the developing story of the Bible. This chapter reveals the way God cares for Saul and his descendants through David. This passage is arguably the climactic moment in the story of Jonathan, and a helpful transition to the role of David as the forthcoming and chosen king of God. Here Jonathan, who by the way would be the successor to the king, transfers his allegiance to David. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, Jonathan swears an oath to David as part of his commitment to him, a very sacrificial move. As the son of the king, he specifically and personally transfers that allegiance to God's choice for King, King David. This this chapter explains and shows that. This chapter also depicts the establishment of a covenant between the house of David and the house of Jonathan causing David to defy conventional wisdom by not eliminating rivals from the line of Saul. Almost any king coming in would eliminate any potential challengers. David does the opposite. In fact, in verse 14, David, the future king, makes his own commitment to Jonathan. So much so that years later, one of of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is specifically pursued by David, given a home, cared for, wealth, and a place at the royal table. So, even long after this scene in the history of the life of David, he is being faithful to his commitment to Jonathan made on this day. Finally, this chapter is important because it gives the first indication. That God is doing something not just great through David, but international. And that's kind of given a glimpse in verse 15. That something here is looked at in verse 15, looking at the life and ministry of David, that God is going to be doing something that's more cosmic in scope. And of course, by the time we get to the New Testament, this is overtly clear. In fact, the very opening verse of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 starts this way. So here's how the New Testament begins its account, not only at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew for the life of Jesus, but just as a, canonically speaking, the introduction of the whole New Testament, Matthew says, this book is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is of the line of David. What God was doing with David would ultimately flow into the life and ministry of, Of Jesus, which means part of what God is doing even for us today. So there's that big picture. But I want to spend the rest of our time seeing how this chapter articulates the unique relationship between Jonathan and David in a way that exhorts us to pursue deep friendship. Brothers and sisters, hear this as listening. We are listening to God's word. We are letting it be a mirror into our own lives, where the the way God designed us and created us to be in deep community and friendship and intimate relationship, brothers and sisters in Christ, committing to one another through thick and thin, loving one another sacrificially, bearing one another's burdens. This friendship depicts, it models what God wants for us to be living together as his people. In fact, there are several traits of friendship that I want to show you from this text that look at the traits of what it means to be in deep friendship. And let friendship become a deep biblical word like sibling, like family. Now please note, these traits are not just guides for you to find a friend. They're also guides for you to be a friend. So these are the kind of traits that... Both parties should reflect. As we see with Jonathan and David, it was not one-sided. For the rest of their lives, in their own capacities, they committed to one another with deep, true friendship. So here's the first, and it comes right in verse 1. A friend is someone with whom you can share your deep fears and concerns. Maybe as Katie was reading and you're you're, you're getting your Bible open or you're just listening and maybe we're paying attention by the time we get to verse 3 and 4, you miss the strong way that this passage starts. Listen to the utter despair David shares with Jonathan. Like just imagine the scene. He's being hunted by Jonathan's father who happens to be the king. That's the soldiers and military behind him. He doesn't even know what he's doing other than simply Having been chosen by God, he says, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Imagine just like a crying, a screaming of excruciating pain, like life just feels totally overwhelmed by this. He's bearing his soul in a moment of real crisis to his friend. Even though Jonathan was the son of the man seeking to kill him, David felt safe enough to be vulnerable. Let me ask you this: With whom have you ever spoken like that? With whom do you share your deepest burdens? Or who shares their deep burdens with you? It's not that you don't have them you might not be being hunted by a king. Well, that's good news. It doesn't mean that life's not difficult. It doesn't mean that there aren't moments, even if in a room this size, certainly for several of us, even now, where we can feel overwhelmed by something we're going through. And yeah, we're so good, right? We come in here and it's like, hey, hey, yeah, good good to see you. I was like, it's giving good. How about you? Like, we're just so good with a mask. And fair enough, you're not just going to share it with everybody in the lobby or down by the donuts. But is there somebody that you can be in a room with, that you can actually call, or when they ask you, you say, actually, not good. Not good. I'm not doing well. Let's be clear, you need a friend like this. And maybe in your marriage, this can happen. In many ways, marriage is and should be an expression of this kind of friendship. But, but, but it's not It's not as if marriage is the, the, the pinnacle of this. The reality is there should be friendships between men, between women, this corporate family of God that has this deep kind of connection. Pursuing this might have to start by extending yourself to people in more personal ways. And I can imagine some of you are like, I am just not good at that. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you need, you take off the cast of your social atrophying body and you need to do some work at it. You've got to exercise it a bit. It will be hard. But if you're being honest, you need it. And if you're actually looking for it, you'll see that your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, fellow student at school, guess what they need? The same thing. This kind of depth can take a long time but it's something to which god exhorts us to do second a friend is someone who encourages you look at the response in verse 2 of jonathan to david's passionate crying out he responds with equal amount of passion and he works hard to meet David in the details of his crisis. Look at verse two. Far from it, he immediately tries to counter. Brother, listen to me. That's not. You're not alone in this. Don't 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 feel so isolated. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. He's trying to match. David's fears and worries to encourage him to see it from a different perspective. Maybe we could use an image. Jonathan jumps down into the pit where David has fallen. He doesn't just stand out of the pit and say, oh, just come out. Would you hurry up? He jumps into the pit to look from his perspective, to stand in the muck and the darkness with him and helps him look to the opening above his head to see if there's a way out. I don't know if you realize how full the Bible is of commandments to encourage one another. That may be one of the commandments we break the most. Almost every New Testament book, and most of them in several places, somewhere near a hundred times in the New Testament, you and I are specifically commanded to encourage one another. Arguably, you should be doing this Daily notes, calls, side comments. Hey, you know, you did a really good job of that. Well done. Or hey, I bet that was hard. You managed that well. Or did you know how blessed I am when you do this for me or, or, or your generosity or just the way I see you? Like those kind of things should just be flowing out of us. Encouragement means to build up. It's giving a person support or confidence or hope like Jonathan gives David. You shall not die. I'm with you in this. Don't despair. To build one up is very different than tearing down or puffing up. We don't want to tear down, but we don't want to just puff up either. We want to build up to see the strengths Encourage good things. Help those who are struggling and lonely and hurting. In this way, a friend gives support and confidence and hope to a person to whom they are lovingly committed. Imagine the impact of encouragement at your work. Imagine it at your local school. Imagine it in your church. third, a friend is someone who participates with you in your burdens. Verse 4, Jonathan's response to David's crisis is both powerful and stark. Whatever you say, I will do for you. I have seen true friendship like this in this church. I have seen a sister sitting next to their sister in Christ. Who is was weeping with loss and pain, and that sister embracing her like it was her own kin and weeping with her. I have seen the strong arms and back of people helping to do physical tasks to care for those in need because their burdens are claimed by their brothers or sisters in Christ. I've seen meals made and delivered. I've seen counsel given. I've seen people stopping by or calling in or visits happening. I've seen this church, many of the people in it, participate in the burdens of their friends. Again, it's not just a lending of a hand, although that may be part of it. It's a life that bears burdens with another. Meaning it's more than just a... Uh, just, a, just a, a, a task. It's more of a mentality, a posture. Think of think of like a parent to a child. It's more, it's, it, you don't unplug or clock out. It's five o'clock, kids. I know you're three in one, but I'm done. That's a full work day. In fact, a parent probably never ends that thinking when they're 15, 16, 17. I wonder when they're going to come home. What, what we got to do for dinner. Hey, they got to fill out that form. You're always thinking ahead process to help them navigate life, to be aware of roadblocks or hindrances to care for them. So also, a true friend shares in their friend's pain, gives their friend praise and celebrates with them, and unites with them in purpose. That requires time, commitment, Life together—all the kind of things that our technology and our atrophied social relationships do not allow. Imagine our small groups putting these traits into practice. Imagine our small groups being a place where you can come and you can share what your burdens are. And your small group people—it's not like they leave. Hey, hey, I will see you next week. Like they're calling in. Hey, what you shared yesterday? That that, I'm worried. I'm just checking in on you today. How you doing? How you feeling? Do you need something? Fourth, a true friendship is like a covenant in which both parties commit themselves to the other. It is not only David who is at the mercy of Jonathan. It's quickly quickly about to change. Jonathan and his descendants will shortly be at the mercy of David. In the midst of their plan... In verses 12 to 17, the two friends make a formal covenant together that binds them to one another for as long as they both shall live. Sounds like a marriage ceremony. But don't just, don't just, this overly romantic view of such things. A covenant is a sacred biblical principle. That means I am with you and you are with me. Look at verses 12 to 17, they're worth reading again. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Like, look, he's calling down God as a witness. It's like he's putting his hand on a Bible. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm the Lord, do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away. He's calling a curse upon himself if he is not faithful to this covenant. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me. Now he's speaking to the future king. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That that word steadfast love is the translation of the Hebrew word chesed. you got to spit to say it, so wait till you're in your own cars. But it's the Hebrew word chesed, which literally is covenantal love. The same kind of love that God commits covenantally to, to, to you and me individually or to we as the people corporately, that love is now supposed like a conduit it's supposed to run between you and me. If I am still alive, verse 14, show me the chesed, steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your, there it is again, steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. When he says that, he's speaking arguably against his own father. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world of contracts, not covenants, that involve lawyers, documents, and all about personal and self-interest. If a contract is centered on personal benefits, a covenant is centered on committed bonds. I fear we treat people more contractually than according to covenant, and we do that not just individually, but even as the church. Besides your spouse and children, are there people in your life to whom you would say you are committed deeply in a covenantal way through thick and thin? You got their back, and they got yours. Imagine that kind of a bond. Maybe even picture it between men, where arguably it can be more difficult to form. You see it. Can you imagine soldiers not having that kind of a bond? Like the movie Band of Brothers. They were in it together. If one man goes down, they would do whatever it takes to rescue. You, you maybe taste on a sports team. What about just in regular life here in the state line area? What if there was a pledge? A friend pledge. Not not wedding vows, but a friend vow. I Mickey, take you to be my true friend, to help and to support from this day forward in hard times and in easy times, in times of plenty and when there is nothing to share, in strength and in weakness, to love and to honor as long as we both shall live, with God as my witness, I give you my pledge. That's what Jonathan and David did. To whom could you make such a pledge? A band of brothers, through thick and thin, offense or not, COVID ain't got nothing on that. Doesn't matter what their political persuasion happens to be. Or not easily offended, because love is there. It's not about self-interest or just mere personal gain or who gives the most. It's deep commitment, the kind of commitment that's reflected in our own relationships with God the Father. Fifth, a friend is someone who makes sacrifices for you. Jonathan's commitment to David was proven true when he endured horrific slander in verse 30 from Saul, his father, when he defended David's absence. When a friendship moves from a self-benefiting contract to a covenantal bond, guess what? Sacrifice is part of the package. Like real friendship is about sacrifice as much as it's about gaining. Remember Jesus' teaching in John 15, 13, I shared a few weeks ago with you? Greater love has no one than this, and someone laid down their life for their friend. Again, it didn't say for their spouse, for their kids, for their country. It said for their friend. Who wouldn't want a friend like that? What would it take for us to be that kind of a friend? Friendship is always an act of laying down, it's always an act of mutual submission, giving up of our rights, our privileges, our preferences. We understand this with our children, and hopefully our spouses. But do we do see that? Do we see that with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Six, the friend is someone who has your best interests in mind. Even after Jonathan is slandered by his own father, he attempts to protect David before Saul, his father, at his own risk. Look at verse thirty-three. Saul, this is at the dinner table, father and son. Hope you didn't experience this at Thanksgiving. I know exactly what that feels like to have a spear hurled at me. Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. He was so mad at David, and he saw the innate connection that he was going to kill his own son to get to David. The end of verse 33 is the most no-brainer verse of the Bible. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. No duh. The aim of friendship is less like a business arrangement and more like a family. Where the bond between people causes them to pursue anything and everything that will benefit or bless their friend. In that case, Saul knew full well that standing between him and King David was his own son. Finally, seventh, And this is where we've been hinting the whole time. A friend is someone who becomes to you a brother or a sister. That is the Bible's category. That's that's an image, it's a metaphor that we can understand. A brother or a sister. Who who do what? They fight all the time. They disagree, they're battling for the largest cookie. They get upset at who gets shotgunned. All those little trivial things that mess with brothers and sisters growing up, but I'll tell you what, when somebody on the outside messes with brother or sister, you better watch out. A bond that in a healthy dynamic is so beautiful, and that is exactly the metaphor the Bible uses for the church. The scene ends with these two friends saying goodbye Picture the scene, right? They, they don't know when or even if they will see each other again. Look at verses 41 and 42 with me, the last two verses of our text. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from the side of the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. So here is the future king knowing that literally his life was in his hands and his friend Jonathan protected him exactly like he said he would. He is paying him. The king is kneeling and paying homage to his friend. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. Again, don't, don't, let, don't let our hyper-sexualized culture mess that language up. This kissing is not romantic. It is that common practice in the ancient world, and even to this day, of face-to-face touch that symbolizes the deep bond. Like the islanders will do a hungi where they put their foreheads together and the bridges of their nose touch, or cheek to cheek, symbolizing our bond, we are united. Notice the text says, David weeping the most. He'd experienced grace. He experienced the gift of friendship in a personal way. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. That's not a see you later alligator. That's a statement of blessing. Go in peace. May you know the true shalom. May you know God's peace. Go in peace, he says, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Those are their last words. And he rose and departed, David, that is, and Jonathan went into the city. There was no blood relationship between them. Their politics and family circumstances should have totally put them at odds, but they have become brothers, siblings in the Lord. And maybe we've reached a bit of a definition here. True friendship has all the marks of siblings, and that fits so beautifully in the church where we are the children of God. And therefore, through adoption in God the Father, through Christ and by the Spirit, we are brothers and sisters. I remember, I remember the, a phone call I had. This was, this was 2002 summer. Laura and I were about to leave for Scotland for school. And a friend of mine named Chad Bora, who I got to know in college, and we worked together at the same camp up in northern lower peninsula of Michigan, We'd become good friends. He was two years older than I. So in 2002, I was 27, he was 29. He had been diagnosed 18 months, two years earlier with cancer, and he literally was at that moment just a few months away from dying. When he passed away, he had three young kids, and his fourth son was not yet born. They lived down in Virginia. We were up at the Trinity area, Chicago, and we were soon to leave, and we were hoping to connect. He was trying to going to maybe make it up to the Chicago area. He had a, one of his brothers living in that area, and we were going to see each other. But he had gone from a good 210 pounds down to 115. And he called me on the phone because he knew we were leaving soon to say goodbye. And man, when I read that passage of David and Jonathan, I think of that phone call. I mean, we were, I was crying. He was crying. I I told him how much I loved him. I thanked him for his investment in my life as a slightly older brother. We talked about what he was worried about. He was worried about his wife and kids who wouldn't have been. He exhorted me to remember the resurrection. No hallmarky kind of stuff. Like one day the Lord will come and resurrect us all. And there's that already, but not yet. He wasn't afraid to talk about the not yet. And I just remember the end of that phone call, we, we, we closed and I said goodbyes and I hung up the phone. I was sitting on our bed. I still remember I was sitting by a little bedside table and a lamp and I remember those phones with plugged into walls. <laughs> I hung up that phone and just literally wept on that bed because it was the last time I would talk to. And I hear this verse and I think, there it is. There it is. Man, if you have tasted that, even through thick and thin, is that not beautiful? Is that not most human? Is that not beautifully Christian? When actually you can have grace and love and humility and forgiveness and unity in the Lord by the Spirit, like a cement that unites us, Can you imagine how different this church should feel than any other place with those kind of bonds? How small groups are these havens for love and care, even in some of the most difficult times? So God, in his wisdom, gave us 31 verses to describe the making of the sun and animals and planets, and a whole bunch of things that... Thousands of years later, scientists can't even figure out, and then he gives us 42 verses to take us on a little walk along two men, brothers, so we can see what friendship is like. Because when God created the world, part of that creation was that you and I would need one another. And some of the core aspects of life as God created it was that we would become brothers and sisters. And I can't imagine that being needed more now. In the last, how many decades does this group of people need to hear that? It's going to take a little bit of time. Because the cast is coming off and God's word is showing us that we've atrophied a bit. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take a context of love and grace and humility, that's hard. It's going to take intentionality. It's going to take time. But my prayer, hopefully all of our prayers, is that that is the kind of deep, intimate, human relationships that we begin to develop. You with your spouse, you with your kids, young or adult, you with your extended family, with co-workers, fellow classmates, people in your neighborhood, and for sure, right here, in your covenant community, God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which ministers to us and guides us and corrects us. Father, provide for us and from us the kind of friendship your word so beautifully puts on display for us to see here in this text. Help us to be the kind of friends that love and and forgive and pursue and commit and help us to find the kinds of friends that do just the same. Father, we know that this kind of reality in a world divided and splintered is almost a miracle, but we believe in miracles. Because we believe that the Son of God rose from the dead. We believe that you made all creation and that your spirit is indwelling in your children now, and that you've commanded us and empowered us to do just that. So in this time of atrophy and separation and conflict, help us to be sons and daughters of the Father who are so intimately loving and loved by our siblings that it is palpable. Father, I pray that you would make that happen in this church. We thank you for your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.